Well, on this beautiful, beautiful sunny day, I've not only just been reading books, I'm, I'm going to be chatting with people. And you may think stories about teenage girls rebelling against their parents are all the same, but this one certainly is not. The Olive Tree is the book and Mariam Alhuli is the author. Welcome, Mariam. Thank you very much for having me. And not only is this first time for Mariam in a radio studio, it's her first book and it's her first interview. Lots of firsts, which is great. Nisma is 16. She has three-year-old twin brothers and lives with her mother, father and grandmother. Hannah lives in a more dysfunctional family. Yep, she does. She lives with a gambling, alcoholic father that beats her and her mother up constantly. Not a very happy family there. These girls live in Qualif in Israel, quite a town of gritty charm, a hub of endurance and resilience and grind. And Miriam's going to read from page four. Our humble neighbourhood was a melting pot of religious Jews, Christians, Muslims, Al-Ahmadiyya and Druze lived and worked together. Compared to the majority of Palestinians and Israelis, we managed to coexist somewhat peacefully. Through the tension between us and them still suffocated every and any interaction, we all felt the pressure of cohabitation, like a plastic film had been stretched from the one end of Kalev to the other. Taut and tight and ripping with pull, you only mix with your own kind was a rule that we all lived by. Our social bounds were defined, practised and, when it came to my mother, enforced. Well, Nisma and Hannah lived over the road from each other. They were also close in proximity of age and intelligence. But their mothers are very keen for them not to be friends. Why was that? Well, as you read the book, you understand why. But both mothers had been through so much trauma in their life and generational trauma at that as well that there was no space for friendship or neighbourhood or anything that normal people would have interacted with. And they'd both have personal things. Nisma's mum, her parents had died because of a bombing. Her, her child couldn't get to a doctor because there, there, were, there just weren't enough doctors around. So there was a lot of angst. And through the book, you get this feeling that... Both sides. Israelis had stolen our home and murdered our people and wanted to continue doing so. The other side, Palestinians, were terrorists who had not only established themselves on land that was unrightfully theirs, they were violent thugs. So you get both of these aspects that, as you have said, have been entrenched. But this isn't the way Nisma felt. No. She, as a 16-year-old, didn't care, didn't understand didn't comprehend why either side wanted to kill each other by her standards. And remember, we're talking about a teen here. She just wanted to buy the latest pair of shoes and and whatever was trending and live a normal life and not be afraid of having any of her family members killed or shot. And she wanted to give the benefit of the doubt for everyone. She was, as a child, and most children are open slate. They haven't been infiltrated by the outside world into thinking of ideas that are not theirs. So she just wanted to live like a normal teen with normal hopes and dreams, but unfortunately her situation didn't allow that to happen. She's smart. She can quote the Quran when she needed to back up an argument. and But this didn't 
help her, especially when other people didn't feel the same way. When she expressed her thoughts or even questioned facts in the schoolroom, what did her teacher do? He called her unpatriotic. He said that it was the people like her and her father are the reason why Palestine was still under occupation and that they should be trialled for treason. Yeah, at one stage she even got detention, you know, for two weeks detention from uh, just questioning things. And even her peers at school sort of saw this friendship develop between Hannah and called her a Jew sympathiser. Now, through the story, Hannah's mother is attacked and Nisma helps Lily to recover inside her home. But how's this seen by the family? The mother and the grandmother that were living there were just appalled that Nisma, with the help and the backing of her father, would accept to do such a horrendous act in their eyes. And what they were mainly concerned about is what the neighbours are going to say. What's the street going to say? What are are people going to say? They didn't really care that they were helping her per se deep down. All they cared about was the image. And and how true is it in our society these days? We care about what other people are going to say rather than doing what's right. And of course, right in the middle of this was Nisma because she had a little bit of English, but what did she speak at home? She spoke Arabic. And Hannah? Hannah spoke Hebrew. So it was only this bit of English English, that they actually could communicate through knowing and Lily felt this the mother as she recuperated felt the tension too but there was nowhere else for her to go no she if if she would have rather had died on the streets than also being put in as she says into you know the filth's house but she knew that there was this is this is the only person that lent her a helping hand and she was too weak to have a say in it well these events evolve and take the book from being just a book about friendship into a page-turning drama and death. And the grandmother's lovely words, this is a quote, if tears would cure her, I'd cry until the end of time. Just lovely. But the customs associated with deaths and funerals are so different from one religion to another. And the customs that, that we get through the book were really interesting. Yes, and not only from one religion, but from one culture, from one state, from one place to another is very, very different. And and in this scene, we had uh, Nisma was sick and tired of having everyone come along and, and just, you know, want to have a chat rather than moan, mourn her mother, mother's death. What she does at the morning was quite quite a read. <laughs> yes. The Olive Tree is the title and the book starts with a story. What makes The Olive Tree so special? The Olive Tree talks about how we are far greater united or what really unites us is far greater than what divides us. And in essence, it represents humanity, what everyone's fighting for a piece of land or a piece of the olive tree. It was there before them all. Yeah, but the olive trees are also a source of conflict now. Yes, so it was Israeli want them to cut down yep. for more housing. The soldiers are patrolling them. Yes, they're patrolling them because they, you know, earn money to to the little bits of land that's left. They make money by taking briberies to protect the little Palestinian people that have little bits of land. So they they weren't there for to protect anyone. They were there for their own benefit. 
Absolutely, and troublemakers. And yes. when who's the pretty young lady? One of them asks. And of course, the olives supply food and work for many in the towns and have so for generations. Yes. We write fairly about the corruption on both sides. The government fueling the hatred of the people in a divided country is much easier to rule than a united one. But maybe we should give that grandmother the last word. And this is from page 114. Girls aren't supposed to be like Nisma, saying these things and rebelling against their teachers. She's supposed to want shoes and clothes to get married. To be softly spoken, it's a dangerous thing for a young woman to be so opinionated, so outspoken. She would respect her tutors, her parents and her ancestors. Mark my words, it will cost this family in the long run more than you can realise. Well, Natchi was right. That's the story and a half. Ah, but you, Mariam Alhuli, you yourself have gone on to do great things. Not only have you graduated in literature and written this very good book, you've set up business. Yes, I founded Eve Skin, an Australian natural handmade organic skincare company. Uh, just before COVID, then me and my sister co-founded Mica Minerals, a mineral makeup company, uh, together. Uh, nearly two years ago, <laughs> I've started business coaching and public speaking, and also founded Force Fem, a women empowerment uh, movement that we get together once or twice a year and support other small businesses and women and empower them to start a journey. Um, that they thought they too old to start, maybe, or they've had kids and thought, you know, I'm useless now. What can I do? A little bit like Nisma yourself, aren't you? You've gone out there and <laughs> done a lot of things. things. So I hope you haven't had the hardship, though, that she's had oh, in her past. Not, not, not as much as she's full-on trauma, but, you know, who of us has doesn't have something inside of them that they've been through to make them evolve to who they are now? And that's what makes writing so interesting. Well, so how can listeners purchase this really attractive hardcover book? So it's available at major online retailers and it's also available on Amazon. You can also purchase from my website, www.mariamalhooli.com. They've got it. So when a feisty Palestinian girl befriends a Zionist, the consequences are dire in the olive tree by Mariam Alhuli. Thank you very much, Mariam. Thank you very much for having me. On, and I've got an interesting introduction to my uh, interview today. And the critics say they never saw a cricket match like that when we played Malongo cricket in the game at Piper's Flat. And the folk are now rejoicing as they, like they never did before, for we played Malongo cricket and McDougal topped, topped the, the score. score. So my book today, Willow Man by Inga Simpson, is, amongst other things, about... Cricket. So, Inga, welcome to 3CR. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Now, your cricket bat. I'm going to start in another unusual place with the cricket bat in this story because it virtually is a character, the way you talk about it, the way you describe it. Willow has a will? Willow has a will. Yeah, definitely the the properties of the timber white willow are a big – was kind of my way into this book. And, yes, the traditional – Batmaker Alan Reader crafts a particular bat for a gifted young player on the rise. And, yeah, did he make the bat for the player or the bat asked to be made for the player? Which but did, came first? does the bat have its own identity? Because you talk about the bat growing into its personality. Even every bat is dying is another thing you also talk about. 
Yeah, they're, they're beings, if you like, um, and made from this beautiful timber. But, yeah, we follow the progress. It's a good observation. Throughout the novel, we follow the progress, not just of the player or players, but the bat. And the bat kind of determines the trajectory of the story without being specific about that. But you go even further. I mean, right from the very outset... And I didn't know this, and I, I, I'm not sure uh, about it. The collective noun for willow is a prayer. A prayer of willow? How appropriate. Is so that... it's a holy thing. It's a holy timber and a holy bat. So is that what you're saying? Well, you're, you're almost elevating it to a spiritual yeah. level. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. A lot of other people have said, oh, the bat isn't really magic. You know, they kind of believe it is. But I, I'm with you. I think it's... Um, yeah, hallowed timber. Well, we'll get into that a little more because just to fill in the background, you've done a lot of research as well. The number of factories that were making hand-crafted bats, pod shavers, crocket cricket bats. Uh, would you care to sort of illuminate us a little about the history of bat making uh, as we find in the book? Yeah, there's a long history of the traditional craft of um, making shaping by hand bats out of willow um, as long as the game itself you know it's a colonial game um, so back into the 1700s the games evolved but not that much the rules for cricket bat making have been pretty steady for a long time but it's very reliant on english willow because steady rainfall and so we can't quite replicate it uh, and the even growth out here in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. So in that way, it's still a colonial game. Um, you know, in the book I say we beat England at cricket these days, which hasn't happened just recently. Um, but yeah, all of the elite cricket bats in the world, nearly all the elite cricket bats in the world are made from one species of white willow. And most of that is grown, still grown in England and kind of locked up by two companies these days. And so rather than that, really bespoke traditional craft. They tend to be produced by big companies now. But the reason why I set the book, Willow Man, at the time frame I did, sort of 2006 to 2009, this is when T20 was coming on board and um, capturing our TV screens and investors' dollar and so on. And there was a lot of talk that this would destroy that tradition of bat making, you know, that made by hand bat, because the players just want a big heavy bat with thick edges, they're going to swing hard at it and they just want to get to get boundaries. You know, the kind of art and finesse of the game is going to go. And it hasn't turned out like that, you know, because like every, um, every kind of movement towards globalisation or mainstreaming or big production, there's a kind of counter-movement of the bespoke, you know. Someone still wants that handmade chocolate or that handmade sourdough artisan bread or, in this case... Yeah, a handmade willow bat. But you can make it for the batsman. Just one thing, though, in terms of the history of bats, rust in Essex. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm a pretty strong environmentalist and, and read a lot of nature writing. And when I read that this one sort of almost a subspecies of white willow was used to make all these elite bats, I just I felt alarmed. I felt worried for the future of cricket because what happens if something happens to that tree? You know, like... Um, in America, a lot of the a lot of the trees have been hit by a rust and then a beetle, and even our own in the snowy mountains, our own uh, snow gums have been hit by a particular beetle that kind of causes a blight. You know, there's just dead snow gums everywhere. So, 
not not quite an equivalent, but the the banana industry yes. in Queensland could go belly up because yeah. it's been bred, and so one disease could destroy it completely. But yeah. let's get on to some of the storyline here. You've already mentioned Alan Reader, a pod shaver. You'll have to explain pod shaver in a minute, but he's also a musician. And that is significant as well. So firstly, Podshaver. Well, that's the traditional name for a batmaker, sort of reflecting the nature of the craft, if you like, which is shaving big curls of willow off um, kind of a a big chunk of wood, but shaping it by hand with these uh, Podshavers to produce that um, much more finessed and fine shape, taking all the weight out of it. Um, And the bats are shaped for particular players. You know, there is quite an art to it, which... Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I made Alan Reader a musician as well. Um, I spent some time with Lachlan Fisher, the Victorian batmaker, um, working out of Lismore, and he has a little willow grove down at Colac. He, you know, so Reader is unashamedly um, based on him. He was a traditional, um, sorry, he was a, a visual artist by trade, and then sort of shifted into bat making by accident so I love this idea and it it helped me draw out something I feel strongly about that this this is not just a craft you know this really is an art and and almost it was an almost lost art but isn't there a connection between music and bats there is a beautiful connection that a friend of mine gave me by accident my friend plays the oboe and for um, the oboe and the French horn uh, it's not your lips straight onto the instrument. There's a reed uh, between the the musician's lips and the instrument, and those reeds are very particular, and they're they're shaped by hand from French cane. And, and my friend was describing the process to me, and I'm like, I have my batmaker's instrument. But doesn't a bat also sing? Doesn't a, a bat have a sweet spot, and you can hear that, and that's what they're listening for. Absolutely, that beautiful sound uh, when the the player finds the sweet spot or the ball finds the sweet spot or maybe you would say the bat finds <laughs> the bats in control. But, yeah, that beautiful sound, the sound of summer for us um, when the ball strikes the willow in that sweet spot. And it is like finding the right note um, when you're playing an instrument. So, yeah, it was a lovely to, – to play with those comparisons throughout it was it was great fun now alan has made a bat for a gentleman called or a young man called todd harrow a rising star and the interesting thing about todd's trajectory in the story is that it brings to the fore all the concerns that you could probably equate with a lot of elite sportsmen today the notion of of maintaining a relationship given the international nature of of sport is one well, and of any um, art form or uh, writing for that matter, you know, if you, that drive to succeed, to get to the top in your field, um, but certainly for sports people today, that takes so many practice hours, um, so much travel, travelling away for games. And for cricket, you know, that's a long game, you know. But it also touches on the identity of each individual player and it's a struggle because you're exposed to um, sort of great praise but then you can be dropped from the team and so a lot of players struggle with that. Yeah absolutely if you're living for the game uh, to be part of that elite national team and it's like living the dream but then what happens if there's a pause in the dream or even just 
when you're hanging out with your regular friends and family and they just treat you like a regular person, but, you know, in the public eye, you're exalted as some kind of god or goddess. Um, and for most cricket players, the best they can hope for is a decade at the top. So even if the dream is absolutely fulfilled, then what? Yeah, and, but it's not even a decade for some. I mean, most. I know, for example, AFL players, the average lifespan of an AFL player is three years in, in the Yeah, craft. until you do an ACL. Yeah. yeah, and you've spent so much time, so many years just getting to that point. You also touch on suicide. <laughs> I do. Um, I read a great book, uh, someone Firth, maybe Colin. No, no, that's not right. Um, we'll have to look that up, um, about suicide in sport, but particularly in cricket. Cricket has the highest suicide rate of any sport. Really? Which I just found remarkable. Uh, and Peter Roebuck, uh, the great commentator who took his own life as it happens, wrote about that as well. Just So it was one of the things I was interested in unpacking for the novel. You know, why? You know, where is all that pressure coming from? How is cricket different from, say, AFL? And yes, cricket's a team sport, but at the end of the day, for a batter, you know, they're, they have a partner at the other end, but... It's it's them, that person, facing up against, you know, in some cases a cricket ball coming at 150 kilometres an hour, coming at their head. Uh, that's a lot of pressure. And, well, you, you go into that because we've got concussion and, it, well, <laughs> and an allusion to uh, Hughes and, and death as well on, on the playing field. Yeah, the, the death of Phil Hughes was a, you know, I had the idea for this novel 10 years ago at least, but it was the death of Phil Hughes that really motivated me to to write the story and to get inside a, a batter's mind. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, and in taking so long to write a book, a lot of things happen. So concussion is, you know, the concussion rules, the death of Phil Hughes, the con consequences of that um, came into the story later on for me, you know, later in the research process, but I felt it was too important to leave out. You've also got Todd's sister, Liv, yeah, that's right. The other interesting thing that happened um, at this time when T20 was, you know, appearing on our TV screens was the, the rise or the return of women's cricket. So the T20 form, whether you love it or hate it, has given women's cricket an opportunity to, you know, be front and centre uh, for the public. And it, it's really taken off, gone gangbusters in popularity and not just supporting the men's game, but now a league of their own, so to speak. Um, and not yet equal pay, but um, better pay. So, yeah, the, the sport, women's sport, has had a meteoric rise in the time that I've been writing this book. So I had to reflect that as well. But you also take cricket to a whole other level in terms of its significance in society. Once democracy came to Athens, theatre became the primary form of cultural expression. Every year for four days, Athenians sat outside from sunrise to sunset, watching the tragedy dramas of competing playwrights until a winner was decided. If you combine the athleticism of the Olympic Games and days of drama as a competition, that's test cricket. It's an expression of the best of us and an outlet for the rest. Maybe that's where the saying cricket tragic comes from. It's insulting, really, to suggest that a person, uh, that a passion for the game is a negative. <laughs> Social consequence of cricket? <laughs> um, I love that about sport, that it is absolutely unscripted drama. I love reading, you know, I love all forms of film, but there's nothing quite like live sport and for me cricket is my passion you are watching there are rules and constraints but anything 
could happen. So watching, you know, a game unfold and then being rewarded with that hat-trick or that brilliant catch on the boundary, you know, it's it's unscripted, it's unpredictable, there's nothing but it, like it. It's a playing out of a, of a culture yeah. and, and that, that arena, gladiatorial in many ways, bringing people together, giving them something to talk about. Cricket's become a byword in our language, it simply isn't cricket, I'd go so far as to say, and this is completely out of the blue, uh, but do you know of any cricketing nations that have ever gone to war with each other? I mean, there's no right, you know, there's rivalry between Pakistan and India, but they haven't currently Yes, they have, oh, over they Kashmir. Have. Over Damn, Kashmir. That's why it's so heated. That's you, why it's you, so heated. You've ruined that little analogy for <laughs> yeah, no. me to how extreme we could take yeah. the art of cricket. But, but yeah, it, uh, the gladiatorial reference is great. You know, we. It's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. You know, why do we hold our sports players, but in this case cricket players, up so high, you know, to, to act out, you know, all our dreams for us. But the damage that that can cause as well, it's a two-sided coin, really. In, in well, we regard. soon turn on them if they stop performing. Yeah. So basically we've got to finish the interview there, but if you want to find out all about cricket, the rise and trajectory of players and uh, the significance of uh, cricket in our lives, Willow Man by Inga Simpson and it's a hashtag release. So Inga, thank you for talking we with really me We really did do trees, didn't we? We Tree? did. Willow, it was a nice trees. pair of trees. <laughs> yes. And, and I was tree. speaking with Mariam Alhuli and her book, The Olive Tree. So that's it from David and I today. So tune in next week. More books? Indeed. Don't know whether they'll be about trees or not. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs>